Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello and welcome to Podcast Like It's 1999, where we talk about the films of 1999 hanging from a helicopter like a teabag here in 2020. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Nybart. And I'm Chaliskov. And with us today is Delandra Mesa, my colleague and my friend from Step Up. Uh, she's a writer and Delandra, you wrote on Step Up, you wrote on Z Nation. What did you write on this summer? Black Summer. Black and- Summer. Mm-hmm. And I've written probably 13 or 14 made-for-television movies. And that is why I wanted to be here today to talk about Lake Placid, because about 70% of them are kind of in the Lake Placid vein or so. Blood Lake, Attack of the Killer Lampreys, Raging Cajun Redneck Gators. (laughs) Blood Blood Lake, is that what you said? It's called Blood Lake, not Blunt Lake. Yeah, yeah, okay. Blood Blood Lake. Lake. Blood Lake colon attack of the killer lampreys that's oh that's the same one that's unfortunate and then raging cajun killer um, gators was also retitled right it was retitled to alligator alley which i think Ooh. is good but what are you gonna do what are some others um night of the wild which is about um, <laughs> a town full of dogs attacking like a small town um rise of the zombies and also zombie night which is kind of a follow-up uh, Bound, which was like our Fifty Shades of Grey, mm-hmm. um, had um, what's her name from Buffy, who plays? Uh, they have Charisma Carpenter. Yeah, uh huh, exactly. Mm-hmm. Very good in the role. 
Um, a lot of Lifetime movies, things that were called things like Wuthering High School, um, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, Dream House Nightmare, that kind of stuff. So if there's anybody who knows, as we discussed briefly on text yesterday, how difficult it is to write these kind of movies, it's you. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is that when we were watching this movie, I recognized the, the format of it. Because all of those movies kind of have a formula. And I was like, oh, this is exactly the same formula. And I was wondering why. And then I looked it up. And it's because sci-fi funded all of the sequels to this movie. Mm -hmm. And so I really think my bosses heard from sci-fi that this was their preferred sort of, um, what do you call it, formula for Mm. features. And so this was the formula that I learned. So I I was like, oh, I know exactly what they're doing in terms of so this is kind of like the the in, in, what you're saying is like this is kind of the the grandfather of Prototype, all the yeah, sharknados right. and all the the because yeah. you worked for asylum which is the company that did sharknado and um there are many offsprings the other you know storm creatures yeah. they do a um, lot they do a lot of what are called mockbusters lavalantula are- yes okay. <laughs> Um, it's a lot of stuff where it's like, it has a similar title, like Transmorphers instead of Transformers. Um, so all of that is direct to video, but they also have a really robust sort of made for TV movie section as well. So that's where I was. It was all like mostly sci-fi lifetime element. I did one for AXS. I did one for Animal Planet, but those were the, the bulk of them were sort of either creature features, zombie movies, or sort of like women's thrillers. But yeah, as I was watching this, I was like, everything except the Sharknados, because Sharknado was kind of its own beast that ended up having its own system of development. But um, all of the rest of them are very heavily modeled on this. I I think really it is this movie. That's what I think the genesis is. And and I would would say that that the entire sci-fi asylum model um, picked a really good movie to base it all on. Cause I think this movie is, I mean, you're going to be surprised just how good I think it is. I think you this movie's tremendous. That. What's that? I, uh... yeah, you told me that. I, I like, think it's, I think it's tremendous. I like it better than deep blue sea for one. No way. Uh, oh, it's like not even close to me. <laughs> it's not even in the same universe. I My, thought it was I, fantastic. I don't get me wrong. I really liked it. Um, but I guess so. Since we're all TV writers, I think that it's it's also interesting to look at the David E. Kelly component of this a little mm-hmm. bit. Like, I think that this feels, in its own weird way, sort of like an expensive R-rated episode of Pick Offenses. Like, I, I think that he has sort of that. The, the Betty White character in particular feels very much like a character out of Pick Offenses, um, and and I feel like at eighty-two minutes with credits. This movie's barely theatrical length. Mm-hmm. Like, I wonder if there's if if there's a longer movie here, and they were just like, "Fuck it, let's just keep to the crocodile and let's not worry about like characters." I mean, I think that Bridget Fonda and 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 Bill Pullman have elements of three dimensionality, but everyone else is kind of. I disagree. I think Oliver okay. Platt. I think Oliver Platt is 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 a is a well drawn character. Part of the reason I like this so much. Yeah. Is the tropes that they used, yeah. they used really well. Like Bridget yeah. Fonda found something in the, you know, the the New Yorker who's never been camping that didn't feel like every other version of that. 
I agree 100% on that. And Oliver Platt's character in this type of movie is usually like out to sabotage the whole mission and usually winds up being the villain. And I thought I also agree on that. I I thought there's something really sweet about like his vulnerability and the way people, you know, seem to be drawn to him. Um, His like his his how wounded he seemed. Uh, I I, I really do think it's a lot deeper than um, most movies like this, like frankly, Deep Blue Sea, which is an obvious comparison to it. Um, It might not be as like thrilling as Deep Blue Sea, but that's not really what the movie is. The the goal here is it's a tent. It's. This is so stupid to say, but it's a tender movie. The goal isn't to kill the crocodile. Well, the they couldn't. I mean, I think what you're reacting to is they do a lot of scenes between the characters and there's a lot of dialogue going on. And, you know, it's very like when I was a kid, I used to skip stones, you know, all that shit. Sure. <laughs> it's sort of like do character development. But I think that a lot of that is a function of a creature feature in which they've spent a lot of the budget on name actors and and a, and nice photography because the photography it looks great like the the quality of the light and everything is so beautiful in this movie and then they hired like at the time big names and then i think the thing when you're doing these movies is that you're limited in the actual effects that you can do like when we did killer lampreys we were sort of told, like, because we want to get Christopher Lloyd and we want to get sort of bigger name actors, you're going to have to take the budget for the FX down to about 50 effects for the whole movie. And when you're watching this movie, you can see that there was sort of a similar dilemma because they definitely wanted it to look good and to look like a real serious movie from the outside. But they didn't. that means that you can't show the croc very much, which they don't. I think the croc has like four minutes of screen time, probably total. Mm-hmm. It looks movie. great, though, when you do see it. Yeah. I love it in the end. Let's stand. Really? In the water, it looks great. But out of the water, it looks a little bit like, like the Ghostbusters characters. Yeah, the CGIs kind of are right. It's Stan Winston doing it. Yeah. That is um, who's um, like amazing. And the rubber, the rubber croc looks so good, especially under yes. the water. Yes. Um, but I think so because you can't show the croc very much because all that shit costs money. It's like, oh, well, let's get the characters talking to each other a lot more than in other action movies. So I, I had to look up what a lamprey was because I didn't actually know what it was. Um, and, and for people that don't know what a lamprey is, it's sort of like a like a eel with like more teeth, kind of. of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which is freaky. I mean, if a bunch of those come at you, that would be really scary. I have not seen your uh, Blood Lake, but it. it I think it'd be- it. It's not good, <laughs> but it's not good. But the best scene is Christopher Lloyd sitting on a toilet. He's the you know the mean mayor of the town, sure. and, and he's sitting on this toilet because you gotta go, you gotta go, and um, even Christopher Lloyd, a lamprey, a lamprey comes up. And kills him through his butt. And <laughs> you Wait, he kills Christopher Lloyd through his butt? Yes. And Christopher Lloyd sells the shit out of it. Like he was robbed. This was Emmy time. <laughs> he, literally- <laughs> he was convulsing. He gave it all. It was amazing. It was one of the proudest moments of my career. I was like, yes. We we should get That's that amazing. clip and put it on. Uh, we should. On- we absolutely should. Yeah. This, I think that. It's the other movie that I feel like I thought about a fair amount when I was watching this and, and a little bit with the, the B movies you, you're talking about as well is uh, Tremors. Mm, yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Cause Tremors, 
probably, I mean, Tremors, I think, had a bigger budget, or I certainly remember seeing the Tremors a little bit more than we see the Croc in this. Well, it was like, but, ten, it was like 10 or 12 years earlier. I mean, it's yeah. just, it, you know, there, it was different. But Yeah, but it had a similar tone to it, I felt like, that this had. <laughs> yeah, where it's sort of a comedy at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I listen. I, I'm I'm not shitting on this movie, Kenny. Just to be clear, I think yeah, that I, I think not. that I'm not. But I, I do <laughs> think that Deep Blue Sea and this are doing they're doing different things. Like they do exist in a similar genre to a certain degree. But like, I don't know. I mean, Rennie Harlan and I don't even know who who wrote Deep Blue Sea. I probably should know that. No. But but like, they're two very different. There's just a very different thing. Like this to me is really much more of a David E. Kelly thing than it is a Steve Minear thing. Like the director feels like he's at the behest of David E. Kelly's tone as mm. opposed to the other way around, which is Rennie Harlan is running that ship. And it's like, I'm doing a really expensive B movie. Yeah. I, I mean, they, ultimately they are trying to do different things. And I think, you know, yeah. just as simple, just as simple uh, um, as deep blue sea being set on an offshore oil rig, essentially. Yes. Versus Lake Placid happening in this you know small town in in mm-hmm. Maine uh, colors the way we look at those two films. It's a much smaller film and has a much more a much smaller feel. But like I think the intimacy works so much better, and uh, the relationships between the characters are, are to me so much more well drawn. Like another thing that I think most of these movies would have done is, by the way, I talk so much shit about. Uh, mm-hmm. English and Australians doing American accents on this podcast. I think Brendan Gleeson's is great. So um, Brendan Gleeson or Oliver Platt, the movie would have picked the side and they might've would have picked, they, they might've picked neither side, right? Those might've been your two villains, but they uh-huh. gave humanity to both of them. And that's why it mattered at the end that, that when, when Bridget Fonda kisses Brendan Gleeson on the cheek, you want that moment because he's changed. He's actually grown. Um, I, so- I agree with that a hundred percent. I guess as you were talking in my head, the perfect movie would somehow be either David E. Kelly writing Deep Blue Sea or Rennie Harlan directing Lake Placid. Like, there's just a part of me that feels like that those like Steve Minear just doesn't really direct this with much of a visual flair, mm-hmm. you know. And I would say that the script in and and I would I would argue as well that. Bridget Fonda and Bill Pullman as characters and, and Oliver Platt. I like them all a million times more than any of the characters in deep blue sea, but the bombastic kind of over the top, big expensive silliness of deep blue sea sells me on deep blue sea. If that makes any sense. I don't know, man, this had moments (laughs) when the bear comes out of the woods and attacks them. I was sitting alone in a room and I yelled, Holy shit, a bear. (laughs) And then the bear was eaten by the crocodile. And I go, holy shit, a crocodile! <laughs> there were That's other the times... That's the character development that you're talking about. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There yeah. were big, there were big <laughs> wild moments. There were a lot of them. The, the guy's head getting bitten off. I love, <laughs> loved it. Bren, Bridget Fonda just kept getting severed heads thrown at her. Like these, correct, correct. these things all really worked for me. Uh, and I do think that there were a lot of like kind of big flashy moments that weren't so much, I don't know, not, not to like, it, it did, it didn't, it didn't feel like Reddy Harlan trying to do Michael Bay the way I felt deeply. By the way, I like Deep Blue Sea a lot. I, know, I, know. I think I know. Deep Blue Sea is like tons of fun, 
Yeah. This felt like its own thing. And like I sometimes there are movies like this, like a Lake Placid, um, you know, a much a, a much much more obvious version of something like that is Blair Witch, where this thing comes along and isn't mm. really of anything else. Is yeah. it really yeah. and, and and does have like these really long tentacles that um you wouldn't necessarily expect. And I think Lake Placid has to you know, kind of Delandra's thirteen credits, uh a long, a long list of things that that eat inspired. So, so um, can I, can I, Delandra? Can I ask you a question? Sorry. Sure. Um, so, just to rewind a little bit, did you see this film in '99? No. Or since was this the first time that you've seen this movie? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I might have um, seen it. I mean, I might have seen it in the way you know, but it didn't register really. Right. Were you just to because you know we we tend to ask this of of our guests, but in '99. Um, were you a big moviegoer? Were you seeing a lot of, of movies? Was this on your radar at all back then? Yeah. Well, I would have been like, I graduated high school in 2000, so I would have been like Mm -hmm. 17 or something, but there was not, I mean, this is back, you know, there was nothing else to do. Like you went to, (laughs) like I, and I grew up in the country. So it was like on the weekend you went to the town that had like a mall and a, and a, um, movie theater and you went with your family and my parents did not care what I saw whatsoever like they showed me seven when it came out they didn't even give me any warning what we were going to see like they did not give my, a fuck mine my too that, that's why we're such good friends I know that's why we're very, like, <laughs> literally we would be fired for like the jokes that we tell each other under our breath like it's it's not good and it's all because of the 90s and these movies and our parents subjected us to they're terrible so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good to have you though <laughs> um so okay i mean i i i yeah it, it does feel like a lot it does feel kenny a little bit like a lot of our guests have a somewhat similar story of like the things that they were exposed to too early to some degree or another do you think that, that is- do you think that has anything to do with with uh, wanting to know. go into this? Like, do you, Phil? I do you know. feel like because I never got the sense that you were exposed to inappropriate stuff? You know, quote uh, unquote inappropriate stuff. Yeah, I, no, my 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 mom definitely. Um, I mean, my mom didn't care, but I also don't think like I mean, she showed me Lethal Weapon when I was far too young. Like, I think that violence was certainly kind of like she didn't seem to really care. Sex stuff, I think, for the most yeah. part. I was a little bit more shielded from. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. It's, you have to wonder whether or not if a kid is either exposed to something quite young or shielded from something quite young, if that in some way or another points them in the direction of the field that they go into. Um, but I, I mean, hard to say. I think that we're, I think a lot of it has to do with your brain just starts to understand the rhythm And particularly because we grew up in a time where there were these sort of um, like um, high concept blockbusters that weren't necessarily based on something else, which I think, which Lake Placid is kind of one of the last like gasps of. Yeah. Um, I think because we were just exposed to this very specific, and I think if you watch this movie, you'll recognize this very specific style of like high concept, really slick the beats are just um, come really fast and sort of furious and you know exactly the point of every single beat. And I think when you're raised watching a lot of that, your brain just starts to understand how to turn a scene sort of automatically. 
and the length of the scene and the rhythms of it. That's what I've always thought is this, my parental neglect, you know, led me to understand the rhythms of a scene. It's true. It does become eternal like a clock. Um, And, you know, it's, it's Delandra and I, I think uh, we're similar and we, we kind of let our kids watch some shit Um, because like, you know, we've run out of shit, I think. Uh, I let, I let Rollins watch Die Hard last night. Any thoughts on that guys? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's how far gone i am <laughs> you just don't care at this point but i'm just on. so far gone like i mean i ran through fast and furious during the pandemic and it's where do you go from there so yeah i, I would be interested and not to you know totally put you on the spot to lunch but i would be interested as we go through the plot of this movie if you could kind of you know do what you can to to, to break down what you're talking about the ways in which like this formula is, you know, maybe I guess not overlaid onto this film because it's kind of, you know, where it, you know, the genesis of it, but, but what you see that they've done that you've adapted or that others can adapt in making a movie like this. Oh yeah. I can tell you, I can tell you, I, 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 yeah, absolutely. I can tell you exactly like what it is they're trying to do. I I think there's also something to be said, speaking of formula, because it does feel like, um, we should we should talk a little bit about uh, the David E. Kelly component as well. I mean, this is a guy who wrote in 1999 by himself, I mean, or at least the drafts himself, over 100 episodes of television and two features within the course of a it's year. Horrifying. Um, that's, that's, that's it's, an, it's, an, it's a truly, truly insane thing. Um, and, you know, it, it's he obviously had a formula. He obviously had a way that he was doing things. You know, he had a room for his shows anyway that were, they were cultivating ideas for him and then he'd go off and he'd write it. So they'd come up with an idea for an episode and then he'd go off and actually write the thing. And it would kind of slot into his, I mean, he was writing, for lack of a better way of putting it, he was writing procedural television, right? He was writing legal dramas or he was writing, you know, stuff that, or even cop shows with with uh, picket fences that felt that that sort of fell into a into a structure. Um, so I'm to, to your point. I, I think that this movie falls into a structure as well. That he easily kind of slots his you know type of characters into. I mean, I think that Bill Pullman feels a lot like Tom Skerritt. Bridget Fonda feels in her own way a little bit. Ali McBealy. Yep, like there's exactly. definitely definitely feelings there. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I feel like this is him having seen Tremors and Jurassic Park. And going, I could do that. And, you know, and then, yeah. and then sort of throwing in Ally McBeal, exactly like you said, I thought so much about like, it actually made me think a lot about the character of Ally McBeal and this sort of neurotic woman character that now it seems a little played out. But um, at the time it was considered like, wow, an unlikable female character. Wow. You know, yep, it was subversive. Well, it's interesting, too. I mean, in, in some of the reading I did, apparently Bridget Fonda was offered the role of Ally McBeal and turned it down because mm. uh, she wanted to focus on films. Um, and then obviously the David E. Kelly connection, I'm assuming, gets her the role in this to some degree or another. Um, she would have been a great Ally McBeal. I mean, I think she would have been fantastic. I think that, you know, Kenny and I texted a little bit about this, but Bridget Fonda just never really getting her due in, in her time yeah. and not getting the roles that maybe she should have got and then kind of just stop. She stops acting. Yeah, Bridget Fonda brings something to this kind of character that I feel like I don't see that often. It's it it, it doesn't feel like she's putting it on, you know. Like I, I feel like it's not a very natural role for a lot of um, 
actors to find themselves in. I think there's a, you have to have a certain level of confidence and assertiveness to be an actor. And don't you're an actor, you could obviously, or you've been an actor, you can speak more to this than I can. But um, but it it does feel like she found this this like this this wavelength within this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, that I don't I didn't feel she was unlikable at all. Like I felt I felt like she was like. Uh, really rootable from from the beginning and she didn't like she wasn't just a, a wilting violet the way you might think this character might be she stood up to the sheriff she stood up to bill pullman and she didn't do it in such a way that kind of made her you know rude or not understanding that it's not her her turf um she didn't take things personally uh i really i really kind of liked the way she played she played this, oh, and i like the way the character was written I think he's drawing it reminded me a lot of sort of a meg ryan character in a way yeah. And I was like, I feel like I can feel yeah. him drawing from that. I can feel him drawing sort of from um, like an Annie Hall type character. It's sort of, you can see what movies he was watching and was thinking, these are the sorts of women I find interesting, which again, at the time was subversive. And I think they, at the time did complain like, oh, this is an un- quote unquote unlikable character simply because she wasn't you know, the wilting flower and she wasn't, um, you know, for everything I wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Kenny and I have talked about this, but um, I'm not sure on what episode it was, but we talked a little bit. And I don't know if you remember this, Delandra, but the, the, I think it was a cover of Newsweek or cover of time, basically talking about the, the evolution of feminism. And it showed like the faces of the different women. And then you had Ally McBeal there and how kind of crazy it is to think about that then um, and how groundbreaking that character was at the time, um, you know, and, and, and it, it's I, I quite liked Ally McBeal, you know, at some point, I'm sure we'll mm-hmm. talk about it in some form or another. Um, it holds up kind of it sort of doesn't in other ways, in lots of ways, it doesn't. Um, but it is interesting to see David E. Kelly having a little bit of a resurgence. Big Little Lies was obviously a very big show. Um, he was not necessarily the person that I would have thought to adapt that material. Um, but I thought he did a, you know, I don't know. The script for Big Little Lies was not that amazing to me. I I think that what makes Big Little Lies, you know, watchable is these movie stars and this director and and sort of the HBO-ness of it and less about the David E. Kelly component. But it does feel like he's having a moment. Did you have have feelings about that? I really liked the first season. I -hmm. I really liked. And... um, I had read the book and to me the to me actually the best things about it are the things that were in the original book and less sort of what the show brought to it. I feel like that author brings such an interesting sense of like setting up unfairness at the beginning of it that makes you want to see a fair resolution by the end and you'll kind of hang in there to see it. Um I, I liked you know, I liked it. I especially the first season, the second season less so. You know, Laura, it's yeah. funny. Laura read the book too. And I think Laura liked it more than I did. I, I really, I mean, I watched every episode of both seasons, so I certainly don't dislike it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't hate the second season, I think, as much as everyone else, because I loved what they did with Laura Dern so much. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> and I just, fa- yeah. I just found her shit so fucking watchable and, and awesome and interesting and fun and you know, that felt like a really cool arc to me. But I, I was so was this in the book, Delancha? Was the framing device where they kept going back to this the interrogations part of the book in any sense? 
I believe it was. I read it a while ago, but I believe that it was. It was pretty, it was actually fairly accurate to the book, except for like a few setting things. But yeah, I believe it was. It took place in Australia in the book, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, agree I think with that you feel yeah. like I wouldn't David E. Kelly was not only not the right you know, not the the uh, expected choice because it's not yeah. necessarily his obvious, but it's the obvious material for him to, to to adapt. Nor is he um probably the right choice considering you know he's a sixty five year old man. But uh, he also wasn't very hot. Like he had been cold as shit for about fifteen years. He was still getting stuff made, but it wasn't buzzy stuff, and it wasn't stuff that was particularly well uh, well received. Like there was the Robin Williams show that was not particularly well received, and uh, I think he's I think he's Goliath, right? Which has some critical renown, but not really. He's Goliath, yeah. Um, not really. And then he had a bunch of other things that just like you know didn't work, like the uh, the Wonder Woman adaptation that's almost like become you know become a meme and a joke in culture so uh yeah it's it he, it's it's interesting that they went to him but uh, i do think that you know some people especially younger people don't understand like how revolutionary he was you know even going back before the 90s when you go back to la law like la law is a completely different type of law show and it was the biggest show in the country yep. for a you know long period of time and he was in his 20s and he was writing every episode of that um, so he's, you know, he's a pretty remarkable TV writer, uh, and I, think, I guess screenwriter, but yeah, I, I would also, I would also just to, you know, to, to kind of, um, close the loop on David E. Kelly. There's a part of me too, watching this that felt like he does have a, a very kind of specific voice. It's almost Sorkin-esque in its way yeah. of sort of this, the, the way that his characters speak, um, they have this, they're, they're very smart. They're very kind of witty, very sarcastic, um, very sarcastic. Um, and, and the casting in this movie specifically with Bill Pullman, Bridget Fonda and, uh, and Oliver Platt, they all understand how to deliver his dialogue, which is specific in its own way. There's a specifically vague kind of broadcasty component to him that feels elevated enough that you don't feel like you're just watching a run of the mill broadcast show, but at the you know what I mean? Like there's this, this, this sort of intellectualism that he brings to it, not as far as Sorkin does where everyone has to sound like they're, you know, the most brilliant person in the world, but they do seem elevated. I don't know if you felt that too, Delandra. I felt like, yeah, there's like a snappiness to it. Um, but there's a lot of dick jokes. I feel like he, <laughs> yeah. I feel like he was, in a way like cool i want to get into this other genre because yeah. it gives me an excuse to kind <clears throat> of like make my characters a little more like potty mouthed and there's like a yeah. lot of focus on sex and then a lot of focus on men pointing out that women are women just pointing it out just being like you have boobs yeah i think yeah. literally says that at one point like you have boobs. Yeah. he does was he like, straight up okay. says to meredith challenger yeah you i think you, you have boobs you have yeah, boobs is literally what he says. Yeah, you yeah. have boobs. And then at another point, they're like, oh, this is like a period. You'd know about that, huh? Yeah. So it's just, but like a lot. It's not even just those two examples. It's sort of constant, um, yep. which is is also part of just, that's how things were written back then. That's very much a product of its time. 
but I do feel the sense of him being a little like giddy to get to get into that kind totally. Of totally, that's a really good point and observation. You know, the worst movie we did was this movie Love Stinks. Don't, are you familiar with it? No, I'm not. It's the worst movie. Um, it's the it worst. Stars French Stewart as a super successful TV writer who's super. I love mean. French Stewart. You oh. won't answer this movie. <laughs> Um, who's, who's, who's super terrible to his girl, who to his like fiance Bridget Wilson. Mm. Um, but he, so he's a TV writer, and they have a few scenes set in the writers' room, and the jokes the writers make are so awful and foul and misogynistic. Um, and they're not the jokes for air, if that makes sense. They're the jokes mm-hmm. that they just make sitting around the room. Phil is holding up the the, the DVD cover. For love stinks right now, just so um, that Delandra can see it in its glory. So, oh wait, I can't see it. Hold on. Oh, no. oh yes. You remember? Oh, friend. Oh, that's so nineties. Look at that. Yeah, everything yeah. about it. Everything it's about it. Entire banks has like three lines, but gets like top billing. So, um, it reminds me to your point because I never considered this. You know, when when I was watching the movie, it does remind me of the jokes writers would make in the room that they know wouldn't get on air. Yep. And like to your point, it does seem like he, you know, he, he there's this part in Curb Your Enthusiasm when Julia Louis Dreyfus was going to do a show with Larry for HBO well before Veep. And she goes, I want to say fuck. Like, I want to be on TV and say fuck. There's a little <laughs> bit of that, right? Yeah. Which, yep. Yep. Like, Kelly, David Kelly is like, all right, enough of this. I want to be, I want to say fuck. And you know what I want even more? I want Betty White to say cocksucker. That's yeah. what I really want. Which she says. So <laughs> she does it very well. She delivers. I She's mean, tremendous. Yeah. Is this the beginning of the Betty White is a foul mouthed old lady thing? I guess. That's, I think that, so. That's a pretty yeah. big deal, too. <laughs> you gotta give him credit. <laughs> I do agree that the movie has tentacles. Like you said, it has some far reaching influence that I think was really um, subliminal. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. Um, So I'm going to give a synopsis for the people that haven't seen Lake Placid, uh, just a little bit of context. Uh, When a mysterious creature violently kills a man in a main lake, Jack Wells, played by Bill Pullman, the local game warden, looks into a bizarre case along with Sheriff Hank uh, Coe, I think that's how you say his name, um, played by uh, Brendan Gleeson, and visiting paleontologist Kelly Scott, played by Bridget Fonda. Looking for clues in a tooth that the beast left behind, Kelly and others eventually locate a monster, a massive, vicious reptile eager to devour anything in its path. Can the crocodile-like creature be stopped? It's written by David E. Kelly, directed by Steve Miner. Uh, it came out on July 16th, 1999, in second place with $10.9 million behind Eyes Wide Shut uh, and ahead of The Wood and Muppets from Space. It would oh. go on to make $56.9 million worldwide on a $30 million budget. It would also spawn five sequels, mm-hmm. Lake Placid 2, Lake Placid 3, Lake Placid, the final chapter, Lake Placid versus Anaconda, and Lake Placid Legacy. Uh, it has 46% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics <laughs> and 36% from audiences. Lake, uh, Lake Placid versus Anaconda, I like. I like the idea that the monster is now called Lake Placid. <laughs> I know, it's amazing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like a body of water versus body a giant water, snake. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, we, we... Well, and to get into it, the lake yes. is called Lake Placid. No, it's not. That's true. It's not. Black Lake. <laughs> It's called Black Lake. They wanted to call it Lake Placid. 
I love that. that. I, that that is adorable to me. That's so funny. <laughs> But they named the whole movie, and they literally just have one line where they're like, we wanted to name it Lake Placid, but it was taken. (laughs) 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 So they went with Black Lake. Okay. Um, I just want to read quickly uh, a a snippet of a couple reviews to give a little bit of uh, the critical response to the movie. Uh, Roger Ebert said, whether the movie was intended at any point to be a serious monster thriller, I cannot say. It is pre- in its present form, it is an uneasy compromise between a gore fest and a comedy, sort of a failed anaconda. The movie is pretty a bad. failed right, anaconda. Has- uh, the movie is pretty bad, all right, but it has a certain charm. It's so completely wrongheaded from beginning to end that it develops a doomed fascination. Uh, we can watch it switching tones within a single scene, sometimes between lines of dialogue. Yeah. Uh, it's gruesome and then camp and then satirical and then sociological. And then it pauses for a little witty intellectual repartee. Occasionally, the uh, crocodile leaps out of the water and snatches victims from the shore, looking uncannily like a very big green product from the factory where they make Barney toys. This is bad. Uh, it's a stupid <laughs> review. Uh, this is the kind of movie that yeah, actually got in long. It's a stupid review. Um, I'm going to read one other, uh, two of the really quick ones. The Dissolve said, at the time Lake Placid was made, Kelly, who happens to be born in Maine, was the undisputed king of the Banterfield hour-long procedural with Chicago Hope, the practice Ally McBeal, all in some phase mm-hmm. of their successful runs. Kelly could be described as a very busy man and a very lazy man. Busy because he had three shows and two movies. Mystery Alaska was the other one, which we'll cover eventually. Uh, going at once. Lazy because they all sounded more or less the same. Though Lake Placid was directed by Steve Minear, whose credits include Friday the 13th movies, the second and third, and Halloween H2O. It's a writer's movie, though, through and through, and Minor serves more as a house director as he occasionally did for Kelly on Chicago Open the Practice. It's neither Jaws scary nor Tremors funny, but genre movie fans in 1999 did have a chance to feast on the year's talkiest, most neurotic horror movie. Maybe that's why I like it. A talky <laughs> neurotic horror movie. It is very neurotic, yeah. Yeah. It seems I like mean, the yeah. kind of horror. It does seem to some extent like the kind of horror movie that um, people who don't love horror but think they love horror might make. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Totally. Because it's not yeah. scary per se. Um, I mean, some things are, but definitely not this one. <laughs> Uh, but there is some decent like gore which is fun and there's yeah. some decent um tension mostly involving anim- the animals themselves i felt less tension with the the humans and more tension when it was like a cow being dangled or something i was like Ugh. but um and the underwater scenes were really good they could um, have done a little more with that one scene when bridget fonda falls into the water that thing was so lame. That is, you know, that's that that's a money scene. You know, that scene you're kind of waiting for all movie. And uh, it turned out she was being chased by Bill Pullman, I think. Um, I, I wanted to sort of just piggyback on what you were saying, Delandra, about the, the underwater stuff. Because I did think it looked really great. And part of it has to do with uh, what a lake looks like underwater and what an ocean or, or a sea looks like underwater. Mm-hmm. It's It's green and murky and it's... It you can't really see very far away from your actual light sources, so it really creates a, a, a really which you don't see a lot. Just a very eerie. I mean, I guess maybe the Friday the Thirteenth movies because they had lakes in them, but but that sort of that dark black. I mean, I went to summer camp and I hated swimming in the lake because yeah. it's 
so dark and so black and you don't know what's going on under there. And I think they did a good job with that in this. It's like fog. I mean, it's the same effect as if you, you know, the girl running from the werewolf in a foggy forest. It's the same effect because you had, in fact, there's a great scene where um, she is sort of hiding behind a tree underwater. Yes. yes and yes, yeah. like surrounded by all the silt and the dirt and yep. the, and the, the creatures coming towards her. And then it, um, misses eating her because the yeah. tree's in the way I it's love. Great. It's great. It's great. Yeah. It's a great scene. Yeah. And it looks that, that robot or animatronic or whatever they use looks fantastic. Yeah. in that scene. there's a great, yeah, there's a great wide shot at one point where you see her sandwiched in between, like in between the jaws with the tree. And bet- it's, it's, yeah, a really good shot it's a really good scene i mean i i gotta say i think the crocodile effects by and large were pretty impressive i mean it's a it's a it's a what 30 million dollar budget so you mm-hmm. don't see it as much as maybe they probably would have liked but when you do get some nice wides of it it's it's pretty impressive i mean it, it, it's got some i mean in there's the water that scene. I, I would just say in the water it looks amazing and out of the water. You didn't like it, the scene at the end when it gets up on the beach and you get no, that really wide. I thought really I thought okay. it looked I mean I just thought it looked, you know, three, okay. four, five levels below Jurassic Park. I mean, puppets oats they look better than CGI. Yeah. They just hold up better yeah. over time. And I'm sure it was a puppet that they had in the uh in the helicopter at the end, and that looked great. Yeah. Like tremendous. Yeah. Like loved. I mean, look, I loved the ending of this movie. I thought it was so great and really clever. Yeah unexpected you know they brought all the elements together the um and and i i I really liked the way they they um wrapped it up and it would have bothered me if it looked terrible so i don't think it looked terrible it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com wow nice yeah what you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I also want to underline what you were saying earlier, because I agree with it a lot. This isn't a movie where the crocodile is, it's not binary that he's the villain, if that makes any sense. Like they're, they're, they really do um, anthropomorphize the crocodile. In a, like you, you genuinely feel bad for it when it's trapped in the helicopter at the end. You don't want them to kill this thing. And that is antithetical to most movies that are made like this right like more times than not it's like kill the fucking thing that's trying to kill people and surprisingly this movie doesn't really go there it tries to have its cake and eat it too by blowing up another crocodile that shows up at a little bit yeah (laughs) which to which to me is almost funny like i think that was played that was played as a as a as a gag i think particularly with with um oliver platt's last line to brandon gleason 
and and his response you know did, did you feel good getting to shoot your big gun he said it was overrated um but which is great which i, I think was yeah. great i think you're supposed to kind of interrogate yourself and your blood your own bloodlust i think you do see this in a lot of movies where yeah. one that i remember was super eight do you guys remember super eight the jj movie yeah yeah where at the end of it they you know there's kind of this weird kinship between the monsters yep. and the kids but uh, it doesn't quite feel the same as when you have two of your four major characters uh, who are actively trying to save this this monster from the beginning. Like that is their stated goal. And I don't think Bill Pullman's stated goal is really to destroy it. His, his goal is safety. And Brandon, Gleason, Brandon Gleason's goal is safety, ultimately, right? So yep. it it does feel like, it does feel to me humane from the start in a way that like anaconda isn't and congo isn't and these other movies and jaws aren't. isn't i and mean you know what jaws, i mean there, yeah there, there's no yeah yes jaws you don't you're, you, you're like kill the fucking shark the you know shark. what i mean like there's yeah i i think there's also something something interesting to because i think super eight's a really good um movie to point at because i think that super eight also very much struggles with wanting the 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 monster to be scary and also wanting you to care about the monster at the end. So when it does get to go home at the end, you get your ET component of yeah. like, oh, he's getting to go home. But it never successfully makes that transition. It's better when it's scary and we don't really understand it. And then when we kind of do understand it, we're just like, what? Like, I don't, I don't really know what I'm supposed to take away from it. Um, this totally. movie does a better job and admittedly has, has uh, quite frankly, lower goals, right? Like, it's not striving to do... Like Super Eight is, it was definitely JJ's attempt to really take a swing, and and you know it was his it was his kind of his blank check movie after the Star Trek movie. So it certainly felt like he had put a lot more on his shoulders. This movie succeeds better because I think its bar is lower. Yeah, there's also, if I remember correctly, at the time, environmentalism sort of a pat. Yes. Um, yes. Let's recycle and let's conserve the environment. That was sort of a popular theme and it wasn't really considered political at that time. It was just mm -hmm. like, oh, everyone should like not, you know, kill the owls. Yeah. Just don't kill yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that that's a little bit of that influence as well. Um, mm -hmm. As well as it, again, little shades of Jurassic Park. Again, the sort of feeling of totally. Like, the beast itself is so wondrous. Why would we get rid of it? Mm -hmm. Although uh, I think the dinosaurs held up a little better in Jurassic Park. <laughs> oh, for sure. I think funny. also, Kenny, your your point about Oliver Platt's character, because when he swoops in on the helicopter, it has a very Jurassic Park vibe, right? Like this is the oh, guy, yeah. this is the money. This is, and the fact that the movie zigs instead of zags, you know I mean? That it does something uh, to, to deconstruct and turn that, that trope on its head it deserves credit for that too. Like that, that, that it takes that character and makes that person to your point, three dimensional um, and not another villain or a human villain, I think is really smart. Well, he in, felt in, very Jeff Goldblum, Jeff Goldblum inspired. Yes. You know? In so many of these movies, that character is, is a, um, is a play on Marlon Brando from apocalypse. Now uh, a crazy wild man who is either going to kill all the people because he's protecting nature or going to kill all the, animals because he's you know afraid of the nature that he probably made um but this just like Delange, did you watch the, the five bloods no not yet i'm not giving much away by saying that there's you know there's a group of characters who were there to um 
to find mines, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who are who are trying to you know de uh, what's the word to dig up and yeah yeah, yeah. neutralize mine, neutralize mines. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know the main the main leader of that group is like a very wealthy young woman from I think Belgium, and obviously the Five Bloods is trying to be somewhat realistic in its portrayal of you know post war Vietnam. I think that there's a realism to to Al- Oliver Platt's character um, that I respected, and I don't really need to see another John Voight come down uh, and making everyone's life hell for no real good reason. So, yeah, I can see that, but I don't think he pulled off the necklaces. <laughs> I the funny thing is I I <laughs> I almost always hate Oliver Platt. I think he's always used like terribly. And there's something about really? him here. Yeah, I mean he was in a horrible movie we watched this year, uh, Three to Ten. That was a right? terrible movie. Yeah, yeah. The movie um, was and he was used to terrible effect, and he often is used to terrible effect. But there's something about him here that I feel like they actually they, they tapped into his base humanity. Um, I'm trying you- to think. I'm looking up Oliver Platt because I'm trying to think of like what. Because uh, I love him in The West Wing. I liked him in Flatliners. Mm-hmm. But I'm trying to think of like what other things. Was he in um, Murphy Brown? Was he in Murphy Brown? No, like, I think that's uh, what's his face. Is that Miles something? No, are you talking about her? Her like handyman painter guy, is like Oliver uh, Platt. No, oh, that man. was what's that guy's name? Like, um, God damn it, I can't remember his name, but. Uh, yeah, Oliver Platt's. I don't know. I like him. I'm always happy when he shows up. I think everybody like likes him. I, I think I'm in the in the minority here, but um, I don't know. I I don't know. You ever see a movie called Digstown? Phil, I've mentioned it on the podcast no. before. He's in that. Great in that. It's a very so, '90s cast. It's very '90s. Like this yeah. is like Bill Pullman. They were really trying to make Bill Pullman happen. Um, they really thought we wanted to fuck Bill Pullman in the nineties. I don't imagine that Quinty face just creeping <laughs> over. <laughs> like I, I, um, I don't know. I saw while we were sleeping. I think you're supposed to want to fuck Bill Pullman just in general. Yes, he goes while you were sleeping, where he was to me very hot, and then he's the president of the United States in the next movie. Is that and Dave. The, yeah. Def- oh, no, no, in Independence Day. He's the sexiest president oh, of all time. Yeah. Um, former fighter pilot. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, I, I, also, I thought women I think, are totally about fucking Bill Pullman and men. I think there's, also, I think there's also something to um, the previous Bill Pullman-Bridget Fonda connection, which was singles. So they're in that together, and he plays the plastic surgeon that almost gives yeah, her uh, a That's a good job. point. That's a very good um, point. And they're great. They only have, I think they have two scenes in that movie together. They have legitimately great chemistry. I mean, their scenes mm-hmm. together in this are great. Um, you know, they they elevate the material. Um, they seem to genuinely like each other. You just feel yeah, like they like enjoy it. being. Um, and so I that love, goes a long I way. Love the ending of it. I mean, you know, I love, there's no one in Maine make a move. Yeah, it's, it's a great so line. much better than. than Which is true. It may. <laughs> I mean, I don't know Maine, but I know small towns, and you'll die before someone makes a move on you in a small town. You'll literally. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're all religious. Together, you know. That's oh, that's the line of the podcast. You'll die before anyone will make a move on you in a small town. I know. 
even at the end, this guy's like, you want to just get a beer? It's like, come on. Yeah, I know. He doesn't even. So he right. puts his bag in between them. <laughs> and then he has the nerve to like complain that she's the one who had to have right. the ball sack to hit on him. And then he's like, yeah. I think I preferred the croc. It's like, you know, yeah. fucking Bill Pullman. Like, honestly. Give him, give, give him a break. He's probably a virgin. So, I mean. He's like, <laughs> those teeth clattering against yours. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is our second Bill Pullman movie. This is our second Bill Pullman movie of '99. We had um, another uh, Fox 2000 movie, actually. Which this is actually, I, I want to talk really quickly just about Fox 2000. Which in 1999, yeah, this 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 batch of movies is insane. Broke Down Palace, Never Been Kissed, Ravenous, Pushing Tin, Fight Club, Light It Up, Anywhere But Here, and in the King and Lake Placid. Like that is a murderer's row of weird fucking movies. He was in all of them? No, no, no. He was only in Broke Down Palace and oh, this. Okay. But I'm just I'm talking about the company that produced this, Fox 2000, oh. which was the, the the studio that produced this. It's a weird group of it's movies. It's a murderer's guy. row of never wases. Like almost yes. every movie you mentioned had yes. very high aspirations and the only one that kind of got there was Fight Club, right? Kind of. It, it failed at the time. It definitely failed in the box office and didn't get any yeah. uh, any any Oscar love. I mean, and yeah. I think we've done a lot of those movies, and we think a lot of those movies are actually like quite good, quite mm-hmm. good, um, like quite yeah. good. But uh, <laughs> they were all misses. They were all yep. like anywhere but here is a very good movie that was a big Oscar play that didn't get any notice. Yep. I mean, Anna and the King was a, as we talked about on our episode, was a very expensive failure. Um, you know, this is a movie that honestly, like you look at this, you look at this roster of films and and most of them, quite honestly, are, are kind of expensive. You know, Broke Down Palace, Anna and the King, Never Been Kissed. I mean, I guess, I don't know. It, it, it's a weird batch of films, but this movie. They're, in the, they're all in, in like the 30 to 60 range. I mean, except for Anna yes. and the King and, and Fight Club. Yes. They're all like in that. They're all they're all in that range of movies that 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 don't get made anymore, right? The things exactly. that we're always whining about that they don't make these mid budget movies. It's because of Fox two thousands nineteen ninety nine roster. That's what ruined it. It kind of is, truthfully. It's it's one of those like all of those movies had movie stars in them. All of those movies had opportunities to break through, and just all of them did either fine or poorly. And that's that's the reason why, you know, we might be where we are. And Bill Pullman is kind of kind of the perfect yeah, mascot. Uh, yeah, mascot of that. Of like the guy that like people seem to like, I guess, in a dad sort of way, but like to Delandra's point, like no one really wanted to fuck him. He's kind of everyone Come always on. Gets These guys are crazy. He, he gets I, mistaken for Bill Paxton all the time. That's, yeah. Did, did people want to fuck Bill Paxton? I don't know. I'm trying to picture Bill Paxton. I know. Wait, I all I can picture is Bill Pullman. That's the thing. Twister. Yeah, Twister. I can only picture Bill Pullman. He's twisting. So. Oh wait, yes. Okay, yes. Okay. <laughs> no, you know, actually, I met him in person because I used to work for his manager, Bill Paxton, and I believe he would bring muffin baskets sometimes. Oh. So yeah, that's the new girl's heart. Yeah. Um, so yeah, cool, uh, cool. there's one other thing that, that, that kind of, <laughs> that this brings up to me, um, to your point about Bill Pullman being the mascot for that type of movie, that type of yep. star doesn't exist anymore. The nope. mid budget star, right? The like you, we still have the same 
30 movie stars we had 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, we've made a few new ones, I guess, but they're all very young, you know, like, yeah. uh, I don't know, like who's a new movie star, like a Tom Holland or something. Sure. Uh, Name star Lord. Um, yes. Yep. And, and then six, all the, all the Chris's. six Chris's no joke. I mean, it's like, it's like six Chris's and, and a few yeah. others. But yeah. if you haven't played a movie star and you're not, you know, you're not someone who, has been nominated for Oscars, which I guess is another way to kind of get your name out there. Cause you know, Bill Pullman wasn't starring in these big movies and Bill Pullman wasn't getting nominated for Oscars. Like there is no Bill Pullman thing anymore. There is no, you know, starring a movie or two movies a year as either, you know, the, the lead of a smaller budget movie, the romantic interest in a bigger budget movie, you know, the, and we're talking about, yeah. this is like tons of guys like Bill Pullman, Bill Paxman. Also, I think Dennis Quaid falls into this. I think Dilbert Mulroney falls into this. I think that there are tons, um, you know, a uh, even Kyle, even you know Kyle McLaughlin falls in, falls into this to some extent. Like, there are a lot of these guys and women who just don't really have a path to stardom. And you know, it's not in it's not inconsequential for the business or for these people. You know, like starring in a TV show, like a a procedural show or a show on a cable network just does not have the same um, prestige or the same legs as it used to have. Uh, and also those roles generally go to people who were movie stars. Um, yep. five, six, do ten years do ago. movies have the same prestige? No, they don't. I don't think they do. I think now it's, it used to be that like, if you were on a TV show, people were kind of like, mm, nice for you. Good yeah. for you. Fairly you know, now that's sort of, if you're not on a TV show, it's like, what's wrong? Who hates you? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think part of that also has to do with, you know, uh, and I'm not telling you guys anything you don't already know, but, you know, your smaller orders, your limiteds, your miniseries, your what have yous, make that a real possibility for a Kate Blanchett to do a Miss America mm -hmm. or whatever. So it really just, it, it put TV on the map in that way. Uh, plus, if we're also being honest, you know, movies don't have the characters in movies might not have the depth that they used to now that franchises are everything. So it's, it, it it's just, it's, it's, the, I guess it's where we're at. This know. isn't really like, this isn't, it's, it, I know it sounds kind of frothy and, you know, meaningless, but it's not meaningless that like now I know that there are like tons and tons of television shows, but yep. Reese Witherspoon stars in three of them. Julie yes. Roberts is going to star in two of them. Meryl Streep is doing the Knicks and just did Big Little Lies. Like the these roles that used to go yep. to, I mean, Nicole Kimmon starring in two of them. These roles that used to go to up and coming actors or character actors like Desperate Housewives mm -hmm. had five character actors or five journeyman women mm -hmm. who wound up playing these lead roles. I mean, and Evie Longoria yep. was on her way up, but four. Um, now, if you cast Desperate Housewives today, it would be five stars from the late nineties, you know, right. you have like Sarah Michelle Geller in there, maybe. Um, so how do you make new stars now? Yeah, it's a very good question. I mean, it does seem as though um, broadcast doesn't seem to get movie stars. And I think part of that tends to be the fact that broadcast still longs for the days of doing 22 episodes i mean if they can they're still going to try um streaming and cable i think you're you're more likely to get you know a, a, a prestigious name or a movie star to do it because it would you know they might also be wise to what i think uh is 
the fact that they don't sell the show that well. Um, well yeah. Particularly yeah. on network, you know, like a show like, yep. for instance, Blind Spot doesn't have a star in it. Blind Spot is, you know, about to do its hundredth episode. That's a show. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I never heard of that. Blind Spot is the show yeah. about the girl who yeah. wakes up with the tattoos all over her body, and they're like, "Where are these tattoos from? What are these tattoos?" So, uh, and I don't even know the star of the show, and she was all over billboards five years ago. Um, but I don't think that movie stardom is so important. I guess that that to some extent might be the answer of how you create new stars. But again, we don't know who these people are. A, a, a young, attractive actress who starred in a show like Blind Spot. Say, um, Evangeline Lilly, uh, 15 years ago, goes on to have a career and become like kind of a, a name actor to some extent in Hollywood. But you know, I don't, none of us can name this actor. And Delandre didn't even know the show existed. No. So, I mean, I, I would argue too that there, there is, there is, there's something to be said for the fact that there is still a, a chasm between. A person who watches broadcast television, who might not have some crazy deep cable package, who might not even have, you know, broadband, you know, there, there are people, you know, you're that are watching procedural television on your major networks that are just completely kind of in their own bubble. Do you know what I mean? And, and there are people that, that I mean... For sure. Blindspot just had its series finale last night, in fact. But, you know, it went for four or five seasons. Um, It's syndicated around the world. And those procedural shows still translate all around the world because of the formula, right? Like, it's easy to have Hawaii Five-0 in Romania or whatever because they get the fucking gist of it. Um, and, And your streaming cable shows just don't really do that. So I, I just I think it's it, it, there's still a pretty big sort of separation between those two worlds, and I think that will still exist for at least ten or fifteen more years. I agree with you. Um, but anyway, formula. Um, let's break down. Yeah, the let's talk about let's talk about the plot of Lake Placid, shall we? Basically, uh, you know, the, the movie opens in a very Jaws esque way with Brendan Gleeson on a boat with his buddy Walt, who's scuba diving in Black Lake. He's attacked by an unknown creature uh, and bitten in half. It's pretty gory right out of the gate. Like, they, oh, yeah. Um, so a lot of so creature feature movies, you're going to want to start with a bang every time. And so you are speaking a formula. Almost all of these movies will begin in the first 10 minutes with some sort of attack, some sort of something exciting, but it is very unlikely that you'll see the creature because they don't have the budget for that. And so most movies in this genre, they're going to wait until about a midpoint of the movie before they actually reveal the monster, which is why you get a lot of these scenes where the tension is built through bubbles on the water, sounds underwater, things that are tied to it. And like you said, the beginning of it is very Jaws reminiscent in that in that shot where he's sort of like... Yeah. The, the creatures got him from the bottom and he's flailing around on the top. Um, yeah, it's very Jaws reminiscent, but I, I think in a good way. I think it's effective. Can I, I want to ask even a more basic question. Um, can you define creature feature? I mean, a creature feature is anything where the monster is a creature, whether that's um, usually not zombies. Zombies is kind of its own genre, although you could lump it in, but mostly it means like creature from the Black Lagoon, 
um, animals that are going crazy, monsters, that kind of thing. Zombies, a little bit its own beast. Mm -hmm. And then usually, see what I was told when I, so when I first started working for the asylum, they kind of gave me the list of what sci-fi like to see in their creature features. And um, it was basically, you start off with a bang. Um, They love um, females as the main characters because you get to see boobs but also it's it's more okay for women to be a little more vulnerable at the beginning and to have that shift happen Mm -hmm. which they sort of do very you know um they do that in this movie with this character too and then the other rule is you need something every 10 minutes there has to be a scare in the asylum they want someone dead there has to be someone dead every 10 minutes in this movie, you can kind of, you can see to a minute they almost there's a, there's some sort of either jump scare or there's a gore moment like when they find the toe or whatever. Yep. Um, so they pace that out about every ten minutes. That's really interesting. It, it's it's it does feel like you've got your you've got your your scare up top, your jaws esque hiding mm-hmm. the creature, and then immediately you're introduced to your you know your scientist essentially right the person who is going to try to get to the bottom of all of this mm-hmm. in this version it's it's a paleontologist who works at the american museum of natural history yeah, yeah. i didn't really get that but that's fine it's fine but here's what's weird. <laughs> later on she's like all icky about i don't want to be camping but i was thinking like out of all the paleontologist has been camping before like that made no sense to me that is kind of what they do on the digs right don't they camp it doesn't make any sense she's like i've never been camping before what's a tent like okay i i don't there's also to 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 your to your point um this whole this whole setup to kelly's character is is kind of fumbled a little bit if we're being honest she basically works at a museum she's working for her boss and dating her boss, played by Adam Arkin, you know, the hottest guy in town. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> he's I mean... fucking her friend. They break up. She finds out that that her best friend or whatever friends, Marishka Hargitay, is uh, sleeping with, with him. And then he sends her into the field because the girlfriend wants to get rid of her or something like that. It's yeah. a very strange setup. And they found a tooth. Yeah. So they're is. like, there's a tooth, there's a dinosaur tooth, so you have to go check it out. But they didn't contact, like, the police department yeah. or anything, apparently. Or they did. It was very unclear, like, did they know she was coming or not? Because they're giving her a lot of leeway, but, like, bitching about it the whole time. It's an odd tee-up to her character. But to, once we get her there, I'm on board. It's just a little... And, and I actually sensed, maybe in this portion of it, the most editing weirdness. Like it yeah. just, it all kind of felt janky. It never really kind of flowed. I was just like, what's going on here? And then they're like, just, just get her to the fucking lake. Well, that's the other thing is in these setups, one of the other sort of formula rules is the hero has to say no to the, to the mission, which mm-hmm. she does quite vehemently a few times. And then yeah. they sort of treat that jump cut like a, like a joke sort of, it's like a, a yeah. funny cut that like, oh, but now she's there. And then the the other one of the other rules is like at the end of the first act, which is a little different because these, you know, when I was writing for TV, you're literally writing acts with uh, commercial breaks in between. But at the end of the first act, it's literally like, and now we're doing the mission. It's like now the mission will right. begin. 
And so they very cleanly in some ways set this up, although the logic of it is like, what, a tooth and an affair? Okay. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're, the insight you're giving um, makes this a lot more clear to me that I think David E. Kelly was trying to adhere to this formula, but he was really trying to keep his David E. Kelly-ness, right? Yeah. Like yes. that, that's so much of what law and order is, was law and order was these people have interior lives. These people love people. These people get cheated on. These people have wants and desires and et cetera, et cetera. And he was trying to do all that in the course of about – 30 seconds. Yeah. Um, and it didn't work very well. I agree with that. I also don't care that much, but, uh, yeah, no, I mean, it's yeah. like, you forget about it quickly and, but, and yeah. like, we never go back to it. So, you know, who cares? Uh, then they basically go and talk to Betty White because they see that, sorry, they go talk to Betty White apropos of essentially nothing. Yeah. Why and did they go? They go talk to Betty White because she's, I guess she lives on the lake and they figure we'll just go talk to Betty White. And then she explains that she euthanized her husband with a skillet. Um, Which is weird because they keep rolling, like the sheriff is rolling his eyes at this story. But you'd think you'd be interested. In murder? In the murder. The sheriff <laughs> 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 He's like, okay, you killed your husband with a skillet. It's like, well, whatever. Like, where is he? That was great. So, so that happens, and then that, that by uh, the way, is like that's a yeah. very David E. Kelly ish kind of move, too. A hundred percent in like Boston legal, over and over and over in David E. Kelly shows, the least likely murderer matter of factly murders someone and gets off for it for being like an unlikely murderer. You know, yeah. like that would happen over and over again. We, I think, yeah. kind of, I think his, his his ethos is kind of like at some point, just let them murder. You know, well, and also he, and this kind of comes back to the picket fences thing and the Twin Peaksy kind of thing that he's yeah. going for. He's going for kind of this like quirky pseudo David Lynchy kind of thing. Obviously, not real David Lynch, but like that that odd sense of humor that exists with like people in small towns. I get and that like Rome the weird Wisconsin things they do. thing you're talking about, though. Like, yeah, which, you know, to me adds to the charm because we're not taking this movie totally. that seriously. I have another yeah. question, Delandra, about the Betty White mm-hmm. character. Is that a uh, is that a type of is that an archetypal character for these type of movies? It doesn't need to be, but I have written, I think in Zombie Night, Florence Henderson played our sort of old lady, foul-mouthed old lady. She was blind in ours, so it was like, oh, blind with zombies, you know, um, was the idea of the tension. But yeah, usually they're there to sort of add to like, oh no, your town's being overrun by dogs or whatever, and your old grandma's trapped in the house with one. How's that going to play out? I guess it plays out sort of the same way as a kid, you know, Mm -hmm. would. Which is interesting because they don't really use her that way in this movie. They sort of subvert that. That, Yeah, I was just going to say, they kind of, again, you know, an acknowledgement to to David E. Kelly trying to usurp any tropes or at least try to kind of, you know, play with them a little bit. She obviously, and as we'll later learn, is, I, I guess, the mother of these crocodiles. Yeah. So, mother of crocs. She loves them. Yeah. So um, she kind of gets to be foul-mouthed granny, which is a little bit of a, a, a groundbreaking thing at the time. Plus, she also gets to be sort of this 
puppet master of the situation as well, which also kind of breaks some tropes. She literally, I guess, fed her. Well, I don't, spoilers. She yeah. literally fed her husband to the Crocs, which I was like, like he I, got. I don't know if she fed him to him. She but like him. it seemed like I, what I happened was, was the Croc was going to try to eat his. The Croc was going to try to eat his horse, so he got in the way of that, and he got eaten by the crocodile. Right, and then she right. buried. I guess what was left of him. It was very. It was very confusing, and I refused to rewind the movie at any point. <laughs> right. So. Uh, there was that reasonable Ooh. reasonable there is something i want to touch on that maybe you guys didn't notice but it's the hair in this movie mm. and it's the way first of all the highlights are incredible in this movie like this is classic and it could have gone wrong because just a few three or four years down the road you had the skunky chunky highlights but yeah, in this bad movie, look. they're beautiful classic highlights in their hairs and then um but really the story to pay attention to here is the French twist that uh, what's her name wears throughout the movie, like in the beginning of the movie, to signify, first of all, that she's a sexy scientist, mm-hmm. but also that she's uptight. Yeah. Because yeah. Her, hairdo her hair's is, back. Yeah. yeah. Her hairdo is very uptight in a very 90s sort of Sharon Stone way. And mm-hmm. then through the course of the movie, her hair becomes looser. <laughs> it's like half up. When she's more vulnerable, and then by the end of the movie, she's been thoroughly sexified, and her nice. hair is just down. So I'm just yeah. going <laughs> to. If you want to know her emotional, like where she is emotionally in her art, yeah. you pay attention to the hair. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, I That's mean, just good uh, work. her her hair tells a story. It does it tells a journey. Yeah. Uh, at this point, uh, Hector shows up, played by Oliver Platt. Uh, he's this mythology professor enthusiast shows that, up in a that's helicopter. our second straight white guy named hector phil yeah that's that is true that yep. is true okay I, um, I can't support this no <laughs> so then we get so it's interesting because we actually there's two moments when uh bridget goes in the water there's the first where the canoe gets flipped and she's in the water for a minute or so, and then they get her. Like it's, it, they literally. Do, I think they do a hard cut out of the lake. Like they don't, we don't actually see her mm-hmm. get back in the boat. And then later, she's kicked out of that the metal boat that they're in, and that's the longer sequence. To your point, that doesn't really build any tension. And she's in the water twice. She doesn't swim. She's literally yeah, she sits there. there. Yeah. Like, I was like, we established she couldn't swim earlier. I don't understand. She's literally just, like, my ass would be kicking so hard to get to the other side of this lake. And she's just like, oh, uh, uh. Yeah. They, do yeah. they do it later, too, when in the big, like, ending scene, yeah. she's just standing mm-hmm. there like an idiot. I don't know. Yeah. Well, she's in the end, right? In the end. But he te- that's the other thing. He tells her to go under the water. Under in the water. my mind, I'm like, can't the crocs swim faster than you? Like. Right. Going under the water is creating less resistance. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, just, I trust Oliver I Platt. He knows his stuff. Uh, <laughs> but in the first one, she has, well, the second one, I guess, she has the life jacket on, too, which I think Delantra might be on some hair shit where he, yeah. she goes from needing this life preserver to not later. You know, at, you some, at some point, <laughs> she, fi- she finds her ability to take some care hair of herself. Shit. Yeah, the hair yeah. the hair shit is real. There's no question you've convinced me that that was absolutely intentional. Oh, 100%. Yeah. This hair person was on it. And like yeah. across the board, these small town hicks 
have amazing hair. Yeah, all well, of them. I mean, every stylist has to start somewhere before they get to the big studio. Yep. Uh, so then, uh, J- Jack and Hector scuba dive in the lake looking for the crocodile, uh, but we don't find anything basically. Um, but then when they come up, one of my favorite moments, they come up and Burke, one of Hank's deputies has his head bitten off by yeah, the, by dope. the crocodile. It's a great moment, even if it seems scientifically impossible, and I'm not entirely sure how it all works. And there's a splash of water that that basically makes it so we can't see anything. But it's you ever have a hard time like biting into something, and you have to use your yeah your molars. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of what the uh-huh. what the croc did. He went and molared it. Now <laughs> he got the head off, so it would be easier. Okay, okay, sure. I just um, realized something, and I want to ask you, Delandra, yeah, yeah. Um, how intention? Well, obviously, it was intentional, but. How much of a trope this is and how much of a um, an unusual thing it is. Because a movie like this usually, I think, has your protagonist, this female protagonist, mm-hmm. your love interest, and your wacky third. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the love interest normally would have encapsulated the traits of Bill Pullman's character and of um Brandy Gleason's character. Right? Is that you, Phil? I don't hear Who's do you that? hear that? Sheriff? Oh, that's me. Sorry, there's some sort of helicopter. You want to okay. Yeah, that's fine. We just I just wasn't sure what was going on. Sorry, <laughs> my cat is like, what the hell? All right. So is that I'll start from like the Bill Pullman part. So usually yeah. I think this character would have encapsulated the traits of the Bill Pullman character and the Brandy Gleason character, the sheriff. And uh, looking at this movie, my sense is Bill Pullman doesn't actually have a ton to do except mm-hmm. for fall in love with Bridget Fonda because Brandon Gleason is given all the pathos, right? He's the one who has the point of view on this. He's the one who is protecting his town and his town's mm-hmm. people. He's the one who, you know, is kind of looking at all these people a little side-eyed and has his, um, his troops to protect. Whereas, mm-hmm. and not to, you know argue against this movie which i love so much but what is bill pullman's Pullman's purpose here i mean i understand that he's a fishing game inspector or whatever but what is his narrative purpose he has no arc by the way no storyline no arc i think i believe he's supposed to be this sort of strong silent type who's never wrong and this is where i think he's a little miscast because his sort of squinty like yeah oh, there's Crocs out there. You know, it's that kind of vibe where he's supposed to be like the manly man and I just don't buy it as much. And that's why I feel like his role seems smaller than it should inherently feel. It does. But also I would say mostly the trope in these movies is to have as many characters as possible because you you need someone to kill every 10 minutes. And that is something I noticed, especially in the back end of this movie, they don't really do. There's very few. Almost no one dies in this movie. No. The guy dies in the beginning. The guy gets his head bit off and a bear dies. Yeah. And the few people who die, you don't really know them at all. And the main characters are held very close to our hearts, I guess. Um, Because, see, usually how these movies would go is you would sort of winnow everyone down to the last two which I assume would be the two, you know, the two lovers lovers. um, at the end. 
Uh, and in this movie, they chose not to do that. In this movie, they chose to keep everyone alive, maybe sort of a Jurassic Park style. Um, I think they thought this was the beginning of a franchise, too. Guys. Yeah, I guess it, 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 it certainly just felt kill like everybody in franchise in franchises of, of, of this nature. You, 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 you leave one person yeah, alive usually or two or true. three. But it's true. I, I it's true. think it. I have a, like a, a I mean, everything you said is true and everything you said, I, I, I agree with. And I think that there's a reason for that. I, I do think that. You know, you you ultimately didn't want this to be about a serial killing crocodile. You just wanted it to be about, like, for instance, he doesn't he doesn't kill Oliver Platt after he's had a meal, um, of the right. cow, right? He's not just a bloodlusting crazy killer like you'd have in so many movies like this who can't eat enough. Like Jaws couldn't eat enough, right? Um, but I feel like there might have been, and I'm not, you know, knowing nothing. There might have been a draft of this where there where there wasn't both of these characters, Bill Pullman and Brendan Gleeson. And they almost okay. separated out like the, the good traits and they gave him the Bill Pullman mm-hmm. and the negative traits. And they gave it to Brendan Gleeson and he has his arc. Right. Yeah. Um, and partially, and that, that kind of feels like because they wanted to do so many things with the sheriff character that you'd have a hard time doing with your romantic lead. Like they want him to punch uh, Oliver Platt in the face for no real yeah. good reason, which was hilarious and would have been a lot less hilarious if it was, you know, the, the handsome Uber male, not that Bill Pullman is that, but that's the intention. That's what he's meant think. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. If the handsome Uber male was picking on the, you know, the, the chubby science guy like that. So I think that they, and, and I think it was to great effect. Like I think the Brandon Gleason, Oliver Platt dynamic was this really strong secondary, you know, uh, romance i mean you know in, in its own way that didn't step on the initial one but yeah a a side effect of that a casualty of that was bill bones character development which there was almost yeah no. it's it's interesting though because it does feel like at this point we have that the, the bear attack crocodile thing which you which you mentioned earlier we talked about but uh jack gets wounded in that and you have sort of this trope of kelly stitching him up the the woman stitching up the the man who's been injured or whatever um and it's a nice scene but again it it really sort of underlines that jack has no character like they're talking there about stuff that is really just sort of a little bit of romance or a little bit of romantic tension but there there isn't anything for him to talk about like he's not actually grappling with anything it's 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 kind of weird yeah, even she um, she earlier had remember I was sort of making fun of her pebble skipping monologue, which is very tropey, but um but at least it was like some sort of insight into her and the intention is to make her vulnerable. I assume that this was meant to make Bill Pullman vulnerable, but see, it's different because of the way he looks with that Easter Island statue face and like his little um weakling body. <laughs> he's not a right cast for this either but imagine it with like an arnold schwarzenegger right she's this little willowy scientist who's suddenly close to this hulking manly man with his shirt off who's being vulnerable his big muscly arms she's stitching him up or whatever it's very big beauty and the beast sort of a moment I think that's the intention of the scene, but because yeah. it's Bill Pullman, it's sort of like, yeah, of course you'd have to patch him up. Like it's Bill yeah. Pullman. Yeah, just don't, <laughs> don't, yeah, don't, don't rip, his, <laughs> don't, don't rip his flimsy skin. But right. yeah. I, you know, yeah. to your point, Delandra, the the guy who plays this role nowadays in these type of movies is The Rock. 
You know, yeah. this is yeah. this is a very similar kind of four person setup to Jumanji. Yeah. Um, in its yeah. own way. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I think that that's an interesting thing. Um, and the, the rock always. The, 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 the blessing and the curse of the rock is uh, he always only gets the good characteristics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They, you never you never give him, you know, any kind of pathos or any kind of deviousness because that's just it's hard to buy. It's a very, these sorts of uh, movie trope as well. Um, If you look at the Sharknado movies, which are also Asylum, the male characters are, they always have to be right. They always have to have a plan. They're always infallible for the most part, unless they get like a little ding on their arm that a cute girl has to patch up for them. That's basically it. But um, whereas female characters are allowed a little bit more, not always, I mean, the badass female character is its own sort of thing as well, but can play a little bit more with like, Oh, but also she's a mother or, Oh, also she has this fear of whatever. Whereas the male characters are not afforded that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I don't know. I mean, the more you, the more you talk about Bill Pullman, the more I agree with you that he's just not right for this. Like he doesn't exude what you need from this hero in a weird way. Um, I like Bill Pullman and I don't, I don't hate him in the role, but it does feel like something's missing. And to your point, Kenny, that splitting hit that splitting the character essentially in two um, hurts, hurts Jack's character. It hurts him. I mean, you, 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 you're left with, you know, it's just Arnold Schwarzenegger, Danny DeVito thing where Arnold Schwarzenegger got all the great stuff and Danny, Danny DeVito got the leftover shit. That's kind of what it feels like, but Danny DeVito is the more interesting character right in twins and the leftover shit is a much more interesting place to start than all the good stuff um i do wonder who would be, do you guys have any 1999 ideas of who might be a better choice it's a good question i uh, Ronald schwarzenegger is not know. right but it's that type do you know what i mean you it throw, is very yeah to throw it out there now again he's not the right thing either but you put bruce willis in the role and it becomes a completely different type of character completely different and i do think that there is you know part of the reason why the rock works so well is the the reason you want movie stars is because half the work is done for you right you know yeah. exactly what Bruce Willis is bringing to the role and unless it's actively stated that it's something different like in the sixth sense you pretty much mm-hmm. know what you're what you're working with Bill Pullman you're right you really you you you're, you don't know what you're getting here you could be getting the plastic surgeon from singles or you could be getting the president of the United States so they do you do have to do a little more work when you have someone with such an ill-defined movie star persona well I don't think it's his fault I just really think he was sort of you know not cast exactly to type. And I think that probably David E. Kelly wanted that juxtaposition. He was like, let's make a more sort of yeah. modern feeling man and not such a big hulking he beast sort of type. But then the character doesn't make sense in a way because he's not that type. So what it's also a budget Dylan thing Mc- too. What if you had Dylan McDermott in the role? Would that have been better? If he bulked up, maybe, I don't know. I, I it, it is Dylan it, McDermott. No, and I'm and I don't mean it in terms of like that's the only type of man that I, no, no, I um, want to see. I just think it's the type that they were writing towards. That's all. Yeah, it's it's a very strange because it's 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 a weird it's it's a it's a weird movie because of where it's existing in its budget. You know, it's 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 got like a thirty million dollar budget. Most of it's going to your special effects, 
And so you're not going to be spending a lot of money on your cast. And Bill Pullman and Bridget Fonda are recognizable names and you just hope that people show up. I don't necessarily think that Bill is completely wrong. I mean, I don't know who else you put in it that gets you any cachet at the price point that they were looking at is kind of what it comes down to. Yeah, I can see why they chose him. P.S. Just want to say, oh, sorry, go ahead. Just uh, in Deep Blue Sea, this character, this, you know, the the person who kind of uh, fills this role is Thomas Jane, who's very similar Mm -hmm. to Bill Pullman, but way rougher Mm -hmm. around the edges. And he might have been a better, you know, pulled out of a cat, a hat type character type actor for this. I do think okay. he works a little better than, than Bill Momo does, but I'm sorry. Yeah, you I, agree. Um, I was just going to say that, you know, around this point, this is interesting because it's right before the big reveal of the monster. And it's, it is about a midway point through the movie before they reveal it with the bear moment is when you first see it and you're like, Whoa, but before that is the decapitation scene. And then it goes into the scene of Jane Fonda being traumatized. This is our scene. Yep. Um, and this is meant to be the turning point in her character where she becomes sort of like more open and less uptight. And her face in these scenes is so good. Like, so good. It's really a great, the scene's okay, but her acting it, she has this like little like muskratty face in a good way, mm-hmm. you know, where she... Like, and then these big eyes, and she just looks so traumatized in that moment. And um, I guess because it's meant to be, like, then the hero, the male hero, is to envelop her, you know, um, sees her vulnerability and is attracted by that. But um, she just plays the shit out of it. I I remember, I, I thought the exact same thing in that scene where I was like, she is giving this so much more than perhaps it deserves you know she's just fucking bringing it her eyes just welled with tears like just at that perfect breaking point and also being able to land the joke because it's it's essentially a joke where he's like are you okay and you can tell by the look on her face that she's not and then she's like yeah yeah no like she she's able to kind of juggle that tone in that moment it's really it's 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 special and then, uh, so at this point, we're back to Betty White. We find out what's happened, which is she's been using, she's using cows to lure uh, the the crocs, essentially, or feed the crocs. Um, we we learn about the fact that her husband kind of got killed in this in a melee between a horse and the crocodile or some shit. Um, and then, uh, when when asked about it. She says to Bill Pullman, if I had a dick, this is where I'd tell you to suck it. Um, and then he puts her on house arrest and she says, thank you, officer. Fuck meat. <laughs> she hates cops. She hates cops. Yeah. She she hates cops. Baby. Yeah. If I had a dick, this is where I'd tell you to suck it. Like wow. there, was, there was a run in the mid 2000s. Nobody would remember this but me. Where female characters on network television were saying suck over and over and over again. Like I remember distinctly Julie Bowen on Modern Family saying suck it. And it does feel like this might have been another tentacle of (laughs) (laughs) Blake Blasted. The first instance of a... uh, <laughs> an otherwise unassuming female character telling someone to suck their non-existent dick, but um, yeah, you know, I mean, yeah. I, 
Oh, uh, a door just blew open. Um, cool. yeah. It but- was a point in culture where they were like, we like women can be like men. Like there's some, you know, yeah. they were, it was a very like macho point in culture where it was cool to be super mm-hmm. like dickish, especially yes. about women. And also in this movie yeah. about like homosexuals, there's like a gay joke that doesn't age yeah. well here too. No. But, so, that sort of machismo is like very prevalent in that time period. And I think at the time it was like, oh, this is women stepping up and being just like the boys and they can, you can suck their dick too, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Whereas now the idea is more like, well, we're different, but equal, you know, we have other parts that are also equal to that. But at the time, I think it was like, very shocking and sort of revolutionary. Delange, did you feel as a female writer in rooms that the um, expectation to take this all the grain of salt, but to talk like a man has changed or not? Because I know that that existed 10, 15 years ago where there was a certain expectation to talk like one of the boys. Yeah. Um, or to I, kind of outboy the boys. Yes, I I remember when I was, especially in college, that was very much the vibe was to try to outgross the boys to make, you know, you made the like tits jokes yourself before the boys could make them in order to be accepted. And then even as a young writer, I remember thinking that showrunners and co-EPs would often listen, like be able to process the way white men pitched. Uh, in a way that was seemed faster and more effective than the way everyone else pitched. And I think it's very much just a, a hangover, not a hangover, like a residual of that, of that, you know, of that sort of um, very like white male, this is the way we speak. And it's sort of, uh, but it is changing. And I, I felt the change a lot. And I think now there's much more um, credence given to, be yourself, bring your own voice to the room. You don't have to speak the way that the white guy in the room next to you does. And that's not even to denigrate the way that white guys speak. It's just that that was sort of like the norm, you know, that was considered normal, whereas everything else was an outlier. And now we're entering this, like, I think really exciting for me phase. Well, that's a little, that's becoming a little passe, that idea that everyone has to speak that way. But the 90s are very much that way. And you can tell the way that even the women are written in this. They're very like, go along with the joke, go along with, right. you know, sort of like, oh, you have big boobies. And the woman in that mo- in that scene doesn't respond no. to that whatsoever. It's just like, yeah, I'm down for that. Speaking of that. There is a a ridiculous moment. So at this point, basically, Hector and um, uh, what is her name? Um, Deputy Sharon Gare Gar, whatever. Meredith Sal. Go on. They go on. They go on his helicopter and he wants to go survey the area where uh, the crocodile is or whatever. And he he's going to get in the water. And she says to him, don't get in the water. I'll have sex with you if you don't get in the water. I Which is it. just like <laughs> uh, this whole scene is so dumb. It's literally just an excuse to get another character in the water when there's no reason why any of them would get in the water. Yep. 
point. There's, it's just literally like, he's crazy. He wants to go swim with the croc and face his deity. They kind of have this storyline with him that like, he believes in the deity of crocodiles, I guess. So then. So, so do I kind of, <laughs> by the way, but you know. Sure. That's the ultimate, <laughs> that's the ultimate judge and maker. So, um, so there's that. So it literally to me is just like, it's the kind of shit the asylum, like I would have written this scene where it's just somebody being like, I don't know. I'm going to go swim with it. You know, <laughs> you need a body to get in there. Yeah. Uh, usually be like drunken teenagers or something who are like, fuck these cracks, you know, and they would just get in the water and get eaten. And instead, but here's the thing is by this point, I had already realized they're not killing any of these characters. So it just deflates all the tension mm-hmm. because I already know they're not going to kill this asshole. And yeah probably they're not going to kill anybody else. I was a little worried for the woman in that scene. I thought they might do a sort of mean spirited, like it comes out and chomps her, but they didn't do that either. And in a way I feel like as they're ramping up to the ending of the movie, they deflate it by not allowing Mm -hmm. enough lives to be lost. Like Oliver Platt getting eaten would have been a good moment. It just would have. Yeah. It's it feels like this whole sequence of him going in the water and whatever, which, by the way, looks great. Like, again, the rubber crock, like the, oh, the, yeah. the the actual crock in the water stuff looks great. Felt like an excuse to have the crock take a bite out of the helicopter. Like it, it grabs hold of it in its jaws for a second and you get a nice money shot of like the crock coming out of the water and grabbing the helicopter. But like that's kind of the whole point of the sequence. And then we basically now we have sort of we're in kind of the end game in the sense of they're luring the the crocodile. They're trying to find it. They're dangling a cow from the helicopter in the middle of the night to try to lure the the croc to come. It's more effective than the Oliver Platt sequences because you literally are. First of all, cow one, this is like ballsy of them because cows are expensive. I don't know if you've ever bought a cow, but I have. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Amazing. (laughs) So first of all, that's just like, okay, cool. Great. But then also like cows are really snuggly creatures. They love to cuddle. They're kind of like big dogs in a way. They grew up with cows, right? Yeah. We raised a cow. We raised, we raised some livestock. So, and we had an orchard too, but, um, we would just raise these livestock for our, our own personal meat for, for the rest of the year. But, um, they're very, we stopped raising cows because we got one and first of all, they're expensive, but two, you really become attached because they're so cute and they come to you when you call them and they want to snuggle. And my father said when he had to slaughter the cow that he cried because the cow was looking at him with its oh, brown eyes going. I, like, could I, never, I could never do it. Yeah. So he was like, no cows. We're only doing sheep because sheep are dumb. So. <laughs> <we're not laughs> yeah. So. So I was super tense. And also this is a real cow and you can tell they're really dunking it. This yes. is not a CGI cow. This is a I real. Cow. They're really dunking yeah. in the water. And when they finally let that cow into the water, I literally, this is the only moment in the whole movie where I was like, no, like you dick. I think I shouted, you dick, why'd you do that? You thought they were going to kill the cow. They did kill the cow. The cow dropped into the water. Oh, the different cow. That cow shows up at the end. That cow walks by in the last scene. In the last moment, that cow is free and just walks. It's awesome. Yeah, he's just um, he's just a he's just a freak out. Now the the one that Betty White blindfolds blindfolds and leads to his death. I can't I can't I can't 
I can't, I can't, you know, speak to that poor cow. Um, but, but it's it just, it just that, the, the cow doesn't work as bait is the whole point. Yeah. Like they dangle it and it, and the, and the croc won't come for the, for the cow. And Hector has a great line where he says, this cow disappoints me, which I, which I, <laughs> <laughs> it is, uh, it is so, it is such a good looking scene. I mean, it's just at night, yeah. like it looks so cool. I love like, yep. obviously it's a very high five movie to some extent, but these lo-fi mm-hmm. solutions are fucking yeah. awesome. You know, totally how totally dangling agree. from a helicopter. Like, I get yeah. I, again, like, this is why this is just a step above, like, like Deep Blue Sea in the end. In the end, Deep Blue Sea was about, you know, almost like robot sharks. Like, like, like they, they were genetically engineered sharks that you were supposed to think were like almost demonic in their creation. Uh, and you desperately wanted them to be blown up. Yep. Um, and if it weren't for the charm of LL Cool J, you might not feel so great about it. But uh, yeah, they're these lo-fi like you know country solutions really work for me. But they also have some of these moments where they're trying to build the tension, where it's just like, come on, man! Like when Hector is in the water and he's like, "Don't shoot at the croc because the bullet might not penetrate its hide." Not great. The fucking racist. (laughs) (laughs) Give it a shot. (laughs) (laughs) Might not work, so don't do it. Just let me. (laughs) And then later they shoot shoot it anyway. So like. It was just really weird. Like they were trying to create this tension because they didn't want to actually do, you know, what they should have done, I think, which is let some of these characters get killed off. Oh, I also wanted to say we kind of jumped over it, um, but I noticed it is that when they get the head, the decapitated head. Yep. um, And then the snake comes out of the mouth. (laughs) This is a classic like it's what usually happens is they'll make a head and then they'll realize it doesn't look as good as they thought it could, which it does distract you. And then this is classic move is like put something, either a spider or a snake inside of it and let it crawl out to just so that people go, they still get, you still get the gore moment. So they, I can tell that Stan Winston looked at it and was like, Ooh, we got to get a snake in there. How about that? That's so funny. How about the bear moment? Like what did, what's your, what was your feeling about that? It was awesome. No duh. <laughs> <laughs> it was all, but but how? But in terms of uh, uh, you like like that was your midpoint turn, right? That's when you saw the monster. And well, it, yeah, go ahead. That's the moment where it's the first time you really see the full monster. Is that moment? So again, it's the sort of thing that usually it would be a person. But they needed yeah, something yeah, yeah. to stand in for a person because they didn't really want to lose any of their main characters. And so they have this bear, which is a great solution because it looks sick as hell when it comes out. And also, I will say again, in your theory that this movie inspired Asylum did, I mean, a lot of movies that were animals versus animals. Um, I don't know if that was inspired by this necessarily um, or, you know, the creature feature genre in general likes to do that. But it's it was a very like classic moment, and it sounded and looked great. It looked great in in Deep Blue Sea. That was Samuel Jackson, right? That would that yeah. that was that moment, um, and it yeah. was iconic, and it, it still is iconic. And I'm always in favor of a, a a major a kill of a major movie star in these movies early on. But then again, you don't have to do it in every movie. Like I think there is there is value in the. 
I think there's value in in not, not necessarily giving the kill every 10 minutes or even kill every act thing here. I liked keeping the team together. It was a good change of pace, I guess. I don't know. I think I also want to say, too, because I keep comparing the movies in my head because they do make sense to be compared to Deep Blue Sea and, and this. And I think that this movie's climax is better than the Deep Blue Sea climax for sure. The Deep Blue Sea climax is it's all uh, during the day. It's outside. It kind of is it. The movie doesn't pay off particularly well at the end. Um, they also, this movie they also kill the the female lead out of spite. Yeah, because she tested poorly, and they were like, "Let's just kill her." So, like, it's not great. Um, Deep Blue Sea does a lot of things well and a lot of things poorly. So does this film. But this film at least understands like go big, go home at the end. It's it all looks great at night. It all has a practical quality to it as well. I mean, one of the dings against Deep Blue Sea is it's a lot of CG going on in that. This movie has, as you mentioned, um, Delandra, uh, there's a lot of practical shark work. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, practical croc work in this. <laughs> um, it just feels a lot more tactile okay. than yeah. Deep Blue Sea does. And that really goes a long way towards not just giving more thrills, but also more of an emotional attachment to the things that are going on in front of you. So I think that Lake Placid sticks the landing better than Deep Blue Sea does in the end. It's also naturalistic in a way that Deep Blue Sea never can be because it's tech, it's, it's techie, which yep. necessarily puts a, a barrier between the audience. Totally. Hard to launch. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Um, well, I will say this sort of ending um, climax is very asylum in that it starts off with this sort of Jurassic Park style chase with the truck. And then it goes into this like various silent climax where people are just kind of standing in, <laughs> in place, like around the scene <laughs> while the monster does CGI thing in the middle. <laughs> and you can tell that the was like, was like, I don't know what it's going to look like. So just stand in your places and we're going to see the eyes here. And like, I've written so many movies. Uh, Night of the Wild was one where just like, see, Night of the Wild was one that was sort of out of pocket for the genre because it's about a town full of dogs attacking people. Normally, as happens in this movie, the animals don't die in movies because people become very more concerned about the animals and more angry about that death than they will about the human deaths. And so normally the rule is you never let an animal die on screen. Whereas now actually in big horror movies, they kill the dog all the time. But at the time that was the rule. And, um, in Amazing. The, and in this, in like in the one that I wrote, I, I was like, you guys, we can't do a dog movie because we're low budget and the dogs have to be trained to do things. And dogs that are trained can only do one thing. That's it. They either jump or they bark or they sit and that's it. That's all we can do. So <laughs> it was just a movie of people being like, ah, and then they cut to a dog being like, and then they- <laughs> I'd like to watch that one. Which I warned them, I was like, we can't pull off this movie. And they were like, bigger scenes, more dogs. The dog, you know, I was like, none of that's going to happen. And it didn't. So it didn't work very well. But you can see the same thing happening here where they're like, we don't know what the CGI is going to look like. So just stand in your places and yep. we'll cut it so that it looks like you're doing stuff, but they don't look like they're doing stuff. I also want to sort of, uh, I want to get your thoughts. And I wonder if this is part of the asylum thing too, which is the, 
I mean, I guess what you would say, sort of the coda, not even the coda, the like the dot, dot, dot ellipse to future movie. Like it's mm-hmm. not wrapped up. You've got Betty White at the very end, basically feeding breadcrumbs to a bunch of baby sharks, uh, baby crocs, that is. Uh, and then I st- I'm still not entirely sure what my takeaway is supposed to be of that shot of the croc on the back of a truck while the credits oh. were playing. I was just like, what are we, what are we doing? Could you imagine driving down the freeway and seeing that next to you? Yeah, that'd be awesome. One time I saw a clown on the freeway, like in a clown car. It was the best. <laughs> That's terrifying. Just a single clown? It was just a single clown in full clown makeup in a clown car. Just like driving it's down the just car. one of us. Yes. <laughs> it was the best day of my life. It was amazing. Um, so but it a- seems like they're they're opening it up to a franchise, essentially, at the end. They are. And they're also, again, letting you know as an audience that the animals are okay. Like, people are dead, but all the animals are fine. I missed the cow still being alive. So that actually clinches that for me, that that's what they were trying to do. And also, the the crocs will live on because Betty White is keeping them alive with her very expensive cows and bread, (laughs) I guess. Um, But yeah, the idea of of these movies is generally that you you do the death every 10 minutes. People are kind of fucking around, for the most part, um, doing tense things like hiding and then um, then there's the all is lost moment at the end, which they don't really do here. There's not really a moment where you're like, oh, my God, everything's fucked. Like in an asylum movie, everyone would be dead except the two leads. And they'd be like their backs against the wall. There's no force. Right. And then something stupid would happen. Like, you know, some deus ex machina shit would happen in this one. They don't do that. But then the other rule is like once that climax is over, get the fuck out of that movie like <laughs> like literally like they lift off in the helicopter and the movie's fucking done that's it because it's over that's amazing yeah we're, do, we're doing um, the messenger later today i guess we did it last week that's a climax get the fuck out of the movie movie yeah no it's yeah it'll be i guess technically two weeks ago but i um yeah i uh i gotta say like I'm curious to hear your rating on this, Kenny, because I want to rate it because I want to uh, get uh, Delandra's thoughts on what we're doing next week. But I want to um, do a trivia question. Uh, okay. In Lake Placid 2, uh, they they don't bring Betty White back. Correct. Her na- Oh, you know the answer to this? You know who plays? I don't. All right. I just know she's not bring, in the next They don't bring her back. They bring back a character with the same last name. I presume it's like her sister, um, Sadie Bickerman. Who do you think played Sadie Bickerman? Who might play Sadie Bickerman? Oh, boy. Because I was going to bring her up earlier as the other older lady that they tried to make a foul mouth queen. Um, but uh, I don't think it works quite as well as oh. Betty White. Florence Henderson? Not Florence Henderson. I Though I think she would probably be the one in the third. Mm-hmm. I think you go... I'm drawing Betty, a blank I on her name. Betty it's- White... This person, Florence Henderson. Cloris Leachman. That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> that was a name I couldn't find. It was on the Florence tip of my Leach- tongue. Yeah. 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 That's who you have to go to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like who else? There's no one else, right? It's like you go to her or you go make the movie. Yeah, that's right. Well, Florence would be the lady with the meatballs from The Wedding Singer. Yes, 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 yes. yes. That little old lady. Hip hop, hippity hip hop. Was that glorious? <laughs> That, no, it was not Gloria Stewart. But that was a lady who was like a popular, like 
She's not the voice right. of Snow White, but something like that, maybe. Oh. In that era, you know? I think I stumbled oh. upon a Gloria Stort movie from when she was younger recently, like looking through those HBO Max Criterion movies. Mm-hmm. Um, which happens. So, um, so Delander, on this on this podcast, we we rate the movies at the end, where um, from zero to ninety nine, zero being the lowest, ninety nine being the highest. Um, and if you saw it in ninety nine, which it sounds like you didn't, or around ninety nine, we rate it then. Then we rate it before we did this podcast, and then we rate it at the end after the podcast, as though the podcast might have changed your opinion in one way or the other. So I'll go first, just to give you a sense of how that how this goes. But basically, I saw this in 99. I saw it in the theater. I honestly remember nothing about it. Like, I remember there was a shark. I remember Betty White. But, like, I saw it in the theater, and and it was just sort of a shrug. Um, I probably would have given it a 65 in 99. Like, I didn't hate it. I didn't – whatever. Um, Before this podcast, I got to be honest, I hadn't – there wasn't a lot of movement for me. I got to, like, 68. It just – it really didn't really do much for me. The podcast, however, has made me like this movie more. Kenny, you made some very valid uh, arguments on on his behalf. Um, so I'm giving it a 74. Um, I I feel as though it's it's a good, better movie than I was giving it credit for. I can't break 80 on this thing. It's just that's not that's not going to happen. But I know Kenny <laughs> probably will. Um, but that that's where I'm at. So you go ahead, Kenny. Uh. I never saw this movie before this podcast. Uh, going into this podcast, I gave it an eighty-five. Um, oh and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm sadly, I'm sadly gonna have to backtrack a little bit on that Uber high rating. And uh, Delandra pointed out how silly it was for me to take it that seriously, and how many moments just didn't work that well. Uh, I think I was blinded by my my love for Bridget Fonda and my attraction to Bill, Bill Pullman. Um, but, uh, I'm going to backtrack just a little bit. I'm going to go to a 79. I think breaking 80 is fucking insane for Lake Placid. <laughs> uh, but I do, I, I do look forward to seeing, um, I do look forward to seeing where it ranks on my, uh, my year and yeah. My, yeah, uh, so do I. my film chart. So, uh, Delancha. And by the way, speaking of that, Kenny, I could see maybe Bridget getting into my top five for best actress like the, i think she's fucking great on this in this. 52 in review she yeah. might make it for me too and you know what else might make it the screenplay um so wow. we'll, we'll see what, hey it hasn't been the best 52 until recently but like this this is that's actually very very true uh Delandra, what's uh um, how would you rank it before you've never seen this movie before so before this podcast and then after the podcast okay well i might have seen it when it came out but if i did i don't remember so it didn't sure. make any register uh, register there. But um, so before the pot, I think my opinion holds pretty steady. Um, I would give it a 65 before um, because I feel like because I recognize the tropes of it so much, I enjoyed watching it to see how they either went with the formula or deviated from it. And that made it, I thought a sort of stimulating watch. And I feel like they were trying to be subversive for the time. And so I totally give them credit for that. Although it's clunky now um, in terms of, especially like the sex jokes, the dick jokes, the period jokes, like the gay jokes, it's a little bit like eh, when I'm, you know, but you can see what they were going for. So I appreciate that. And I would think even after the podcast, I think it's about it holds steady in that like 65 zone, I think. But I do think I do appreciate it really, I think, set the standard for those sort of sci-fi creature feature movies that were really popular 
um, you know, uh, subsequently to this. Yeah, I, I, I fully agree. I mean, I, I think that, um, I mean, I liked it a lot more. And, and I really do believe that this conversation is, has certainly changed my perspective on the film for the better. Um, you know, but um, so yeah, I, I think if week, you have it above uh, 80, you are um, you're troubled. So <laughs> I, <laughs> I can't quite do that. Uh, next week, we have Michael Natale coming on to talk about Pokemon, the first movie, which uh, came out in, in 99. And then there was Pokemon 2000, which was, I guess, released in 99 overseas, but didn't come in out Japan. until 2000 here. So we're just going to we're going to stick with the first movie. The first movie. We're going to do it the right yeah. way. Yeah. I know nothing about Pokemon. I went to see Detective Pikachu. Um, that's, that's as much as I know about the series. Uh, I think Pikachu's very cute. Um, I, I, I like him when he talks like Ryan Reynolds. Um, but that's all I know. What are your thoughts, uh, Delandra on Pokemon? Uh, I'm very familiar with Pokemon. I was not a fan growing up, but my son loves Pokemon. So I have seen all the movies you just talked about. And I can tell you that you enjoy Detective Pikachu more for having seen Pokemon the first movie because it's very referential to this movie. The movie is quite a ride. You're in for... (laughs) I'm excited. I've actually seen this movie as well uh, because I have a child who's very into Pokemon. And I agree. We had a conversation with Jessica Ellis, uh, what was it, last week or something like that? Yes, About this same thing. And, you know, I do think that Detective Pikachu's failing was that it was for people who had some baseline understanding of Pokemon. Mewtwo makes no sense in the world without having some understanding of what this thing is. So I actually feel you're going to be shocked. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to be shocked at at what you watch. Um, I can't wait. The emotional turn in this movie makes zero sense. And yet somehow emotionally yeah. it's satisfying. So I, I'm going to do something right now, which we've never done before, Kenny, um, which is I'm going to eat my words and say that next week is actually not Pokemon. Next <gasps> week is Entrapment. And Entrapment oh, leads into Pokemon, which is why we were talking about Pokemon with Jessica. So well, I'm at least thrilled we that we got, got Delandra's perspective got on Pokemon. Pokemon in two weeks. That's what I'm saying. Do you remember, but I'd love to hear, do you remember the movie Entrapment? Does that mean yeah. anything to you, Delandra? Yeah. Not at all. You'll remember, you'll uh, remember well, the gift, Delandra, of Catherine Zeta-Jones' Zeta ass going underneath a uh, laser. What you thought looked like a laser, but is actually, actually a piece a laser. of string. It's actually a piece of string. <laughs> it's basically a Sean Connery is a is a, a sort of a, a thief, and they work together to like steal some shit. It's, it's not a good movie, but we have Jessica Ellis, who is a tremendous guest, who was our guest for uh, Anna and the King. Uh, so she came on to talk about entrapment with us. Um, so that's actually what's next week. But the following week, you guys can look forward to Pokemon coming out after entrapment. Yeah. And so next week, my apologies for entrapment. It's a great episode. Jessica's an amazing It's a great guy. episode. Uh, we, we do a really deep dive into uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones and whether or not, is she a good actor or is she not a good actor? Do you have a feeling on that, Delandra? Just a little preview? Uh, I'm not going to tell our, our thoughts, but yours? Yeah, I love Catherine Zeta-Jones. I think she's just classic, old school, like movie star, femme fatale, just classic in in a way that we don't really have 
anything that's like her anymore. Maybe sometimes Scarlett Johansson fits that same bill. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones performance, perhaps? Moro is the first time I saw her, and I remember watching it in the theater and my breath just being taken away. Who was this beautiful woman on screen? And she, you know, in that movie, it's like the petticoats and the swords and the soft. And then I love, I think she's great in Chicago. She's so good. We'll talk about that off mic. We'll talk about that off mic. <laughs> well, thank you so much for, for, for coming on, Delandra. We really I just don't want I don't want to give away my thoughts on, on that. They're, 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 I don't disagree with What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.